Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hockey, specifically ice hockey. Without a doubt, Canada's number one contribution to world culture. The first organized hockey game was played in Montreal on March 2nd, 1875, less than six years after Canada became an independent nation. A man named James Crichton, a figure skating judge and prospective law student, is credited with organizing the game. This first game featured sides of nine playing against one another at the Victoria Skating Rink. Creighton's team, comprised of McGill University footballers they called the Reds, won over the Whites by a score of five goals to two, or two games to one, depending on Portage, apparently. Afterward, a fight broke out, pitting players and fans against members of the Victoria Skating Club, whose home ice had just been used for the match. The following day, the Montreal Gazette featured write-ups of the match on page 2 and on page 3. Hey, no sports pages in those days. One of which declared that the match was an interesting and well-contested affair, the efforts of the players exciting much merriment as they wheeled and dodged each other. And there it is, set in stone. The first ever official hockey game is a pure Canadian invention. Even if one points out that Creighton more or less cribbed most of the rules for his new sport from the Scottish game Shinty, the argument can be made that what makes hockey hockey is the ice playing surface and the indoor setting. And that's what the Canadians brought to the game. Or so we've been told. But recently, anthropologists, historians, and filmmakers are taking a closer look at the origins of hockey a sport whose distinct rules had actually slowly evolved in Canada for as much as 150 years before the 1875 Montreal game, and possibly in Ireland for generations prior. I came across the in-vogue theories of direct connection between hurling and hockey while researching episode 12 of Truly the Goats, an episode devoted to the ancient Irish game of hurling. In digging deeper, I found most roads leading to a documentary film produced by Irish television network TG4. So as not to lose that episode down a tangential wormhole, I produced this bonus episode instead. So after the break, I'll be joined by Aaron Harris. Normally, Aaron concentrates on a different sport for his Sports History Network podcast, The Football Odyssey. But like me, he's also keen on movie reviews. And so we take a look at the 2017 documentary, Puck na Nigel, or Puck of the Irish. My name is Oz Davis, and this is Truly the Goats, sports history as told through its superstars. All 
All right. With me is Aaron Aris of the Football Odyssey. Let's talk about Puck of the Irish. Irish hurling legend Garrett Lofton is on a mission to discover the Irish connections to ice hockey in Canada. He reveals how the Irish emigrants who settled there over 200 years ago created the sport and played a key role in developing the game from its inception on a frozen pond in Nova Scotia to the modern arenas of today's official championships. This is a poignant exploration of the incredible contribution of Irish immigrants in creating and developing a sport that went on to help define the new nation of Canada. That's from the official synopsis of the Irish Film Festival London from 2017, which is when this documentary was released on Irish TV. And lucky, lucky, it is available to anybody who wants to watch it on the TG4 official website. I'll put the links in the write-ups or whatever. I'll, at the end of the show, I'll give you a link to the movie so you can watch it yourself. All right, enough of my long-winded introduction. Aaron, thoughts on the film? So whenever I was young, probably around in middle school, I started to develop like this big fascination for sports history, but in terms of like the genealogy of sports, um, I was really interested in finding out, you know, how, how do games that kind of look visually similar come about? You know, was it simultaneous innovation? Was there a direct lineage? Which I, I guess in some ways explains my passion for football history in terms of the structure of the game and the development of the game rules. But, you know, I was interested in learning, you know, what was the relationship between like baseball and cricket, you know, both kind of like bat and ball games. What was the similarity between uh, volleyball and I can't pronounce the name of the sport, but it's a sport they play over, I think, in Vietnam or Thailand where they it's volleyball, but you can only kick the ball. Um, So hurling and hockey always seem to me to have some sort of relation and watching this documentary made me kind of confirm what I had thought going into it, that there had to be, had been some sort of relation because hurling looks to the naked eye a lot like field hockey. And I didn't know this going into it, that there was actually two forms of hurling. You have the hurling that's predominantly played on the ground, and then you have the hurling that you can pick up and throw the ball and catch with your hand and use your stick or throw the ball up and hit it with your stick, which I think if I heard correctly is still the popular game that's played uh, in Ireland today. Uh, so it made a lot of sense whenever I found out that it, you know field hockey or ice hockey had kind of come from Irish immigrants who wanted to still play and resorted to playing on the ice. And I think how they went to each region and kind of detailed certain players that came from like Montreal or Toronto and showed how the game, I guess, had kind of taken on its own identity in a sense, but had still remained a cherished aspect of the Irish lineage, if you will. Wow. If you like all this Book of Genesis stuff about sports, you're going to love the, the Truly the Goats episode on Gaelic football coming up next. Yeah, um, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I was waiting for that one. Yeah, yeah. The sports uh, has a very definite starting point. It's very unique among the, let, let's say, the uh, gridiron football games yeah. uh, that we play today. There's a lot in here. And I'm going to say this right on the top. I was left wanting more. Mm-hmm. And I got to say, not necessarily in a good way. Now, now, I think that this is no fault on the part of the station or the documentary maker. I think it's just a question of budget. This thing is billed on the website as season one, episode one. It's not. It's a one shot. 
that's what we would call a TV movie in the States, right? But I mean, just the scope of what they're taking on in this movie is incredible. And it's all crammed into 50 minutes. Now I've got this drawn out into about five episodes. You know, we start in the 18th century, the films, the documentary starts in the 18th century in Nova Scotia with an early wave of Irish immigrants. And there's sort of, you see the, the slow morphing of, of hurling into hockey uh, through field hockey, more or less, you know, it's, it's merging into ice hockey. You have that. Then you have this whole thing about the Montreal Shamrock and their great player, Henry Trihe. You also have the response uh, to this, which is the Montreal Canadiens, which is created by an Irishman, but was designed to be a sort of Montreal United. They wanted the French speakers and the Gaelic speakers and the English speakers to root for one team in those early days of the NHL. Right. Um, I mean, how is just that the early history of Montreal hockey? Not one episode. You know, I, I want 30 minutes on that. And, you know, I know it's the same old thing. They don't have video and stuff. But if they had had the budget, they could do like recreations. They could do simulations. Um, there, there's a million ways you could have gone with that if they had had some kind of budget. Then you go into Frank McGee and those 1900s Ottawa Senators. And then this guy goes on and he tries to form the Irish Canadian Rangers, you know, the special military troop to fight World War One. just Irish speaking Canadians, you know, it's just fantastic stories here. You have the whole Fergus King Clancy story. You have Con Smythe taking over the Toronto Maple Leafs. I mean, you know, Con Smythe, it's just, there's so much stuff. And then women's hockey. Women's hockey in Canada gets like four minutes. It's like, God, it's so much more. I understand the basis of the documentary is to show the lineage between hurling and hockey, but I could have used more hurling and less hockey. I feel like if I want to learn about hockey, I have a lot of resources to learn about. Hurling, I think, is a little more, or I shouldn't say a little, it's a lot more peculiar. There's going to be less resources to find, I, you know, maybe more than there was 10 years ago with the internet just continuously expanding. But I was interested in learning about the development of hurling, who were some of like the pioneer teams in the 1800s or how, whenever, what year it kind of came into existence. You know, I want to hear from the, the writings of the guys who had first played, you know, why there was two separate games. Uh, why did one game kind of take over in popularity and why did the other one kind of fall into obscurity or maybe not obscurity, but eventually be the blueprint for what ice hockey would become. So I really wanted to learn more, I guess, about hurling and its kind of relationship with Irish culture, as opposed to the impact it had or the influence it had on the Canadian game on Canadian ice hockey. Well, I got two responses for you on that. One is thanks for plugging truly the goats. I mean, if you want to know, if you want to know hurling history, please check out episode 12. I mean, this game is, is thousands of years old there. This is the only ancient sport that is really played in Europe still. We don't do chariot racing anymore. We don't do gladiator sports anymore. We do do the Olympics, but as far as really team games, games go, though. as far as team games go, wow. You know, aside from hurling, probably the oldest sport in Europe that's still played is cricket. And that's like only five or 600 years old. You know, hurling is the ancient game. 
And so thanks for plugging the episode. But the other thing is this too, this is made for a Gaelic audience where you're born knowing how to play the game, apparently. So they don't need that. They don't need that explanation. What, what would be nice is if somebody in Canada had been super impressed with this documentary and again, like threw a lot more money at because then you could make that whole series. You could show like a more direct route. One of the problems, and you know, I, I bounced off uh, your comment when you, when you said it before about this adaptation of the game is that of, of the two different games is that he said that, but that's kind of an oversimplification. This film was revisited by the BBC in 2020. And uh, they did some pieces on that. And the thing is, these rules were really fluid. So it's not so simple to say there was a northern game and a southern game. Yeah, it tended to be that folks in the north kept the ball in the ground a lot. Why? Because it's cold and miserable a lot of the time and you don't want to play. It's like, you know, again, it's like playing football outside in those Buffalo Decembers or whatever. You don't feel like hitting the guy. You don't feel like getting tackled and hitting the ground, which feels like tarmac. You know, so yeah, in general, but recent archaeological digs have found that, for example, there are southern islands that played in the so-called northern fashion. And then, of course, we don't really know anymore how they handled like catching the ball, throwing the ball, because, you know, in hurling, you can kick it. You don't have to right. use the stick. You can kick it. You can use your hand. You can run with the ball, you know. And we don't know every single town, every single castle has their own rules of the game in the 1700s, 1800s. It's also a, a unique game in Euro-America in that the golden age comes before that great organization period of the 19th century. You know, that was the big thing about the 1800s is this rush to codify soccer versus rugby versus American football versus Canadian football versus guess what Gaelic football that's when later you get the creation of basketball and volleyball with rules that was like the big thing about the 19th century sports but hurling's greatest days were before that so to encapsulate this in a documentary it would be the Irish don't need to hear this but everybody else it's a mind blow but see, do you think that they really don't need it? Because obviously they have a relationship with their sport. You know, it's a national sport for them. But even then, like how many people in America do you think could give you such an in-depth history of football or baseball or basketball for that matter? I mean, do you, do you think that it's possible that a long form documentary, say that's a couple hours just on the sport of hurling, that does maybe dedicate the end portion to sort of the influence it had on a sport like hockey. I mean, don't you think that they would have something they could really learn from it? Or do you think that the sports legacy is kind of more ingrained from the time they're a child? Um, wow. That's, you know, there's this stereotype about Americans. That's really unfortunately true. It's kind of dying away a little bit, but it goes like this. Americans won't watch any sport where they're not the best or they're not among the best in the case of hockey, right? Because Americans are not traditionally undisputed number ones in hockey. But do you think that's necessarily the case though? Or do you think it's because hockey just has a more suitable climate for everyone to be involved? Whereas people like say in the West or the South can't really participate at a young age and develop an interest. Here you go. I mean, one of the best players for the Toronto Maple Leafs right now is from Los Angeles. 
right? Okay. So, but I think that um, the, the thing about hockey that's unique is this. And the, the NHL may be, it's certainly got to be among the top three professional leagues in the world as far as talent, player by player talent. The one quote I heard on this was amazing. You talk about how in basketball, women's basketball or men's basketball or women's soccer, you talk about dream team. You know, the USA has a dream team. Well, in hockey, you have six dream teams. Sweden, Finland, Russia, America, Canada, Czech Republic. These all have great teams. And all of these guys are in the NHL. Uh, as I understand it, in the last Olympics that we actually had, the 2016 Olympics, every single NHL team had at least one player represented in there. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah, That's incredible. And again, it doesn't matter half the world doesn't play it. That's an amazing level of competition. You know, and again, like hockey is not quite like basketball and soccer, which all of these sports have international appeal. But soccer and basketball are played everywhere, literally. Right. I mean, you, you don't play hockey in Iran. You just don't. I mean, you, you might have a couple of teams in one rink, but <laughs> you're not going to get a high level of, of hockey in like Iran. But you can get a high level of soccer in Iran, sure. You can get a high level of basketball in Iran, sure. Sure. Well, I've, yeah, so, I think a lot of I think a lot of that is just resources too. You yeah. Know, to play to play soccer, you need a ball. You know. Yeah. Hockey is an expensive sport, and then of course there's the most expensive sport at all of all, which is gridiron football, which is why nobody plays it. <laughs> it's a American right. Canada. There's just no resources. There's just no money for that. So it's it's kind of an interesting question uh, in that regard. I guess I don't know. Hockey is about as international as it's ever going to get, right? Well, I was asking. Well, I was asking about hurling specifically. We kind of got. I asked a kind of a question within the question, but like, do you, do you think that a long form documentary actually would have been suitable for the Gaelic audience because maybe they don't know the legacy of their own sport the same way that maybe older generations did. I mean, I think I think older I generations might have had a greater appreciation for like the history and you know might have indulged in that a little more than people today, like maybe in my yeah. generation who were just distracted with anything that they can find in an iPhone. Well, in this respect, it's a lot more like European sports. Okay. Yeah. So with the example, uh, even including soccer, which of course is the big one, right? European club sports, they say that like the NBA is about the players, right? Football, NFL football, college football is about the ritual of Sunday. It's about the ritual of Saturday, mm -hmm. right? But European sports are about the club. It's about year to year, the club. And when they talk about the history, when Manchester United fans talk about the history, they go, that year, you know, 1920, 1921, when everything came together. And it's like that year. But it's all about the clubs. It's about the fans. It's about, you know, the team history and like that. Now, hurling has become that in the 19th and 20th century. Before that, you know, the structure was completely different. Instead of having, you know, these nice organized teams, you know, Ulster versus Dublin or whatever, you had, here's this king, here's this baron, and he's going to challenge this other baron, and here's his young strapping lads, and here's this guy's young strapping lads, and let's have a match. You know, so it was like the old Aztec thing, you know, where one chief, you know, challenges another chief to a game once in a while. And that's the way they played. Now, however, it's like that. It's all county. It's all local. And so they're they're more in line 
with the soccer clubs, basketball clubs, in this case, Gaelic football clubs, where it's all about the county. It's all about pride in the club. Right. So in that respect, you know, there's always going to be that divide between American sports and European sport. But so American sports will always have that divide. You know, again, like to get more heavy about it, this is a cultural thing. We have so much emphasis on the individual in America. Of course, you're, you're going to remember the superstars. You know, you're going to remember the Babe Ruths. You know, it, it's not. And and we all have our loyalties to our club, right? But we all love Michael Jordan, too. So, yeah, but I think recently, I mean, I guess that's always been a factor, but I feel like in other areas or in other sports, especially in other countries, there's always been like that individual superstar that people always flock to. Mm-hmm. I just think like being being a dominant presence in the world, people that want to like a slice of American culture kind of buy into it a lot, mm-hmm. you know, and I think uh, I, I think recently, too, with fantasy sports, like the individual has kind of been the, the more I think our media infrastructure evolves, the more content we have to fill and the more profiles we make about previous kind of like your show with like goats, you know, and like like the last dance was all about Michael Jordan. You know, it's like mm-hmm. we're always trying to find content to fill. So we want to profile the greats that came before us or people mm-hmm. that were from our childhood or what have mm-hmm. you. And I think with just with fan, and I think with fantasy sports and in that of itself, you know, we, we become so much more focused on individual achievements than we do teams. We'll get back to the Truly the Goats podcast in just a moment. But first, I'd like to take a minute to tell you about quite possibly the greatest website of all time, newspapers.com. If you're listening to this podcast or any of them at the Sports History Network, you're probably into sports history. And you probably also know that for learning about anything prior to, say, 1990 online, the typical search engines like are nearly completely useless. But then there's newspapers.com. Newspapers.com gives you access to over 640 million pages worth of news from North America, Britain, Ireland, and more, dating from 1798 to last week. Do up a search for Super Bowl I, the 36th Berlin Olympics, Wayne Gretzky's first game, whatever. Newspapers.com takes you there with historical flavor that search engines like just don't give you. And now get a free one-week subscription to Newspapers.com by visiting sportshistorynetwork.com slash newspapers. With a paid subscription, you'll also be helping to support the production of this podcast and other Sports History Network shows. That's sportshistorynetwork.com slash newspapers. Newspapers.com. Way better for searches than you know what I'm talking about. All right, what would you say? Thumbs up, thumbs down. Who would you recommend Pac Nanigal to? Who would I recommend this to? Uh, well, I, I don't. Well, I guess I, I would certainly recommend it to more hockey fans than I would. I, I don't know a single hurling fan, hurling fan aside from you. And I, don't, I don't know if I ever will. <laughs> um, if I was in like, uh, if I was at a university and I was taking a sports history class, I think maybe I would go to the professor and say, "Hey, you know, maybe there might be something here for you to." you know, angle a lesson on to, to some effect, but yeah, by and large, I, I think maybe a super diehard hockey fan, if I wanted, if I thought that maybe they would appreciate some sort of history of the sport going back before, before the, like the birth of hockey, I think maybe they would find some interest, but by and large, this is really niche that I think maybe I would recommend to three people. If that. <laughs> yeah, if, if, if you like general sports history, I think if you're a hockey fan, it's good for you. One of the things I liked about the movie is, you know, as a Canadian wannabe, 
you know, I love anything set in Canada because, wow, you know, I love their cities. Um, you know, I've been to Montreal. I've been to Nova Scotia. It was nice to see that again. I, I love these documentaries like this because on some level, the director and the often the narrator of the film gets a really good deal. You know, because they're always going to this like really picturesque part of the world and, you know, everything's paid for. <laughs> it's part yeah. of the movie budget, you know, it's like so in that respect, man, this guy had a nice little road trip through uh, Eastern Canada. So good yeah. on him. Yeah, that's um, definitely okay. that's definitely the ideal job. <laughs> I understand there's not much glory in documentary movie making, but you got to love the perks. Um, I don't know. I, I feel like in past. 10 years i feel like especially with the rise of netflix a lot of people are really into documentaries more mm-hmm. than they've ever i think document well i don't know if this is accurate to say but i feel like documentaries are probably more popular now than feature films all right aaron thanks for joining us here on this special edition of truly the goats thank you for having me on april 2nd 1908 albert spaulding made an announcement of intended earth-shattering importance for Americans and the game they had come to love as their national pastime. Spalding was a huge name in baseball at that time. He'd been a pitcher in the 1860s and 70s, helped form the National League, and player managed his Chicago White Stockings to the first championship in the inaugural season of 1876. Oh, and that same year, he founded Spalding, the company that supplied the big leagues with baseballs and bats since. But in 1908, Just prior to the opening of one of the major league's most exciting seasons ever, Spalding played the social anthropologist. In detailing the findings of his special commission, he stated that, I claim that the game of baseball is entirely of American origin and has no relation to or connection with any game of any other country, except insofar as all games of ball have a certain similarity and family relationship. Specifically, Spalding and the so-called Mills Commission had, quote-unquote, discovered that a U.S. Civil War general named Abner Doubleday had in fact laid out the rules for and had staged organized games of baseball in Cooperstown, New York in 1839, some nine years before the acknowledged first official game between the New York Mutuals and the Knickerbockers at Elysian Fields in New Jersey. It certainly appeals to all Americans' pride to have had the great national game of baseball created and named by a major general in the United States Army, and to have that same game played as a camp diversion by the soldiers of the Civil War who, at the conclusion of the war, disseminated baseball throughout the length and breadth of the United States and thus gave to the game its national character. That really was quite the appealing story for a turn-of-the-century USA bursting with a new nationalist pride espoused by President Teddy Roosevelt. It was also a complete fabrication. The Mills Commission had been created almost entirely in response to an article by Henry Chadwick, the first great baseball writer and revolutionary statistician who just happened to be British. In 1904, he had the temerity to write that You will be surprised when I tell you that this year of 1904 completes a period of more than 70 years since the first regular baseball club was organized. This club was the Olympic Philadelphia, which began its existence in 1833. The old game of town ball was simply an American edition of the English game of rounders, which I used to play 65 years ago when a schoolboy in England. So after three years of questionable research, at center of which was an anecdotal letter from a former classmate of Doubleday's, Spalding created a myth to fit the American facts. 
In denying the connection to rafters, Spalding instead favored theory which had baseball evolving from town ball, which had in turn descended from a uniquely American game, One Old Cat. But a quick glance at the rules of One Old Cat makes it utterly obvious that this game was an adaptation of cricket by kids who had as much playing space as their counterparts in Britain, but with fewer playmates and little equipment. Indeed, Spalding's myth of Doubleday was so thin that even the most credulous and patriotic of baseball fanatics could see through the holes. In 1839, it was soon pointed out, Doubleday was still a student at West Point Military Academy, some 150 miles away from Cooperstown. And while a 1998 article in the magazine Civil War Times Illustrated has Doubleday requisitioning baseballs and bats for his troops in training, mention of this requisition nor a single other word about baseball, appears in some 60 volumes worth the diaries kept by Doubleday. Despite the Baseball Hall of Fame's stubborn refusal to give up the Doubleday myth until the 1990s, most of the American public until then wasn't buying that brand of nonsense. And who can blame them? Even if Spalding's story had been more watertight, why is a creation myth even necessary for a sport as grand as, say, hurling, or cricket, or baseball, or hockey? In the same way American baseball devotees should take pride in baseball as an original, fascinating, and beautiful take on bat and ball games, descended from hundreds of years of human ingenuity, so too can Canadian hockey fans boast of making something personal of an ancient game which predates Rome. In concluding Puck of the Irish, Gare Lofnane summarizes his take on the connection between hurling and hockey by speaking of hockey's, quote, sporting heritage of which Irish and Canadian people alike can feel very proud. But truly the goats might say that this sentiment misses the point. By dispensing with facile origin stories and nationalist claims of ownership, we may enjoy pride in our species engineering and in our own culture's contributions to the human experience of sport. This has been Truly the Goats, a Sports History Network podcast. To find us online, visit trulythegoats.com. On Twitter and Facebook, we're at Truly the Goats. For more like-minded shows, be sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com. Like the man says, it's your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. Truly the Goats thanks our guest for this episode, Aaron Harris, producer of the Sports History Network podcast, the Football Odyssey. The Truly the Goats theme song is Fun on Street, greatest remix of all time, and is produced by David Liso of Dynamo Stairs. Music used in this episode includes Went to Fight and a Hockey Game Broke Out by Jared C. Bala. This track is made available through Fair Use Agreement via freemusicarchive.org. This is Oz Davis for Truly the Goats and the Sports History Network saying... Get that lumber in his teeth and always keep perspective.
Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude. And I hope that you enjoyed this recent episode presented by the Sports History Network and were able to learn some good old-fashioned sports history knowledge nuggets. I started the Sports History Network back in 2020 with the mission to help podcasters find a community of like-minded sports history nerds as well as helping aspiring podcasters to start their own shows. We have a little bit over 30 shows on the network right now covering all sorts of sports history, but as far as I'm concerned, we're just at the toothpick in the ocean moment, you know that. Can't even figure it out because there's so much more coming. We wanted to create the ultimate headquarters for sports yesteryear, starting with Podcast Network and our website, but we're going to continue to move into other mediums as well. And here's the cool part, because we want you to be part of our team. So if you're interested in starting your own podcast, or maybe being a guest on one of our shows, or who knows, maybe even writing an article for us over on the website. Seriously, all you gotta do is reach out to us on the contact page over at sportshistorynetwork.com. You can be as technologically savvy as a Neanderthal tapping on a stone trying to figure out this whole hieroglyphics thing back in the day. Again, it doesn't matter, because even if you don't understand the whole podcast space, we have a production team that can pretty much help you out with doing everything. All you gotta do, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com, head to the contact page, fill it out. That message goes right to me, and I'll reach out to you as soon as I can. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through.